Our scripture passage this morning comes from 2 Samuel chapter 9. And David said, is there, anyone still, is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he answered, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show him the kindness, show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel of Lobadar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lobadar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of, your, of Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul... And to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's, David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house, house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. This is the word of God. Thank you, Heather. As uh, Drew mentioned, my name is Terry Henderson, and I'm not one of the pastors here. Um, and it is a, it's an honor to, to uh, be able to do this today. And just to set the record straight, I'm as nervous as you are about this. But we can rest in the fact that none of us are as nervous as Drew and Jonathan are. So, so we're, we're good. Somebody asked me this morning about this, and I said, it's not part of like one of these movies where Drew and I were out in a uh, field somewhere and got struck by lightning, and, you know, we changed bodies, and, and it's nothing like that. So... Uh, We'll see what happens. My, my uh, primary goal today is not to embarrass my 18-year-old daughter. And if we can get anything else done, then we're good. Uh, if you are here uh, for the first time today, uh, let me encourage you to be back next week. Uh, regardless of what happens today, let me encourage you to be back. To, I was thinking about it this morning, and it's, it's like when I go fishing with someone. Uh, it's, you know, we don't catch any fish, and they always say to me, man, you should have been here last week. The snook were everywhere. And then they would say, well, maybe if you came back next week, the tides would be better. And, and so let me encourage you to be back next week. So, but if you are here and haven't been here with us for very long, we have been in a sermon series called David and David's Son for the past couple of months. And in this series, we've been looking at the life of King David, who is one of the preeminent figures in the entire Bible. I think there's more written about David than anyone in the Bible. And Drew pointed out a few weeks ago when we first started the series that these narratives in First and Second Samuel that we're reading were probably written to the returning Jews from exile 
for a couple of reasons. One was to show them what a true king should look like so that when they chose their leaders, they would know what, what to look for in a king. But more than that, it's to point them and also to point us to the true king that's coming, David's son, who we'll, we'll be talking about around Christmas time. In case you've missed it, let me just summarize kind of where we are in the story so far. Israel wanted a king, and they were given Saul. From all outward appearances, Saul was very kingly, big, strong, but his heart was wicked. And so God sent Samuel the prophet to anoint David as the next king. And from all outward appearances, David was very unkingly. He wasn't the firstborn, he was the lastborn. He was small, but his heart was pure. David, as you know the story, uh, faced the giant Goliath and killed him. And in doing that, he won the adulation of all the people, which made Saul very envious. And Saul's sin then began, began to rage. His envy began to rage, and he started looking for ways to kill David. Now, during this time, David and, and Jonathan, uh, Saul's son, became good friends. And every time that, that Saul tried to kill him, Jonathan would protect him. David had plenty of uh, chances to kill Saul during this time, but he chose not to. So after all the armies were defeated and so forth, last week, Jonathan, our Jonathan, uh, preached and talked about the ark, which was captured by the Philistines, coming back to Jerusalem, and there was great celebration. And the big takeaway for me last week was that we learned that Jonathan, our Jonathan, can dance. (laughs) So that that was what I meditated on all week. But that's where we are. Uh, now, in Acts chapter 13, Paul's speaking, and, and he, he quotes God as saying that David is a man after God's own heart, right? And so today we've come to a story that reveals a really intimate glimpse into his heart. And perhaps it's the passage that best shows the purity of, of David's heart. So we're going we're gonna to be talking about that today. And here's the specific setting for this, this story in 2 Samuel 9. David had fought and conquered all of his enemies, including Saul and the Philistines. Saul was now dead. He had consolidated his power, and he's now the ruler of the United Kingdoms of Judah and Israel. And he's established his seat of power in Jerusalem. The ark is back in Jerusalem where it belongs, and David has moved from being this battle-weary king, battle-weary warrior, to now now he can act as king. And he's finally at rest for the first time in many years. And so that's where we, we find our passage in Second Samuel 9. Now, David has the first chance really to be king, right? He's not in hiding anymore. He's not in battle anymore. He can be king. So what would he do? He had a couple of choices. He could expand his kingdom by conquering other lands, kind of like Alexander the Great. He could build monuments to himself because he was very popular with the people. So what would he do? Let's look at the text to get the answer. And there are three things that I'd really like for us to see today in this passage. The first is the gift that David gives. The second is the recipient of the gift. And third, motivation for the gift. First, the gift. It's mentioned three times in the text. Verse 1, David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Verse 3, And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Verse 7, And David said to him, do not fear, I'll show you kindness. So the gift David really is giving is kindness. Now this word is not foreign to us. We use it all the time. That lady was kind to me today when I bumped into her in the store and she didn't say anything. 
That gentleman showed great kindness when he helped me when my car was broken down. There was a bumper sticker a couple years ago, which I never quite understood, do a random act of kindness today. So, you know, we use the word quite a bit. But this type of kindness is surface, almost superficial. Anybody can give that kind of kindness, right? But to be honest, if there's something deeper than that, I'm a little concerned because I have trouble even at that level. I can't pull off these random acts of kindness like I should because I know my heart. Here's an example. So um, a while back, I, I, my office is near Publix, and so usually I'd, I'd maybe run over and grab a sandwich or something and eat at my desk. So I went over. I was in a hurry, obviously, because I have you know, a really important job, and I'm an important person. And so I, I went over to, to Publix, and I grabbed the sandwich, and I grabbed a banana, and so I had two items, and so I went to the 10 items or less line. And maybe you've been there before. Because, you know, I had two items, which is less than ten. So I got in line, and I immediately saw the guy in front of me, and I looked in his basket, and I began to mentally tally. I think he's got 12 items, 11 minimum. And so what I do when I see that is I look at them, try to get eye contact, and then I try to very conspicuously take them up to the sign that clearly says... Ten items or less. So I try to do that. But I always smile because, you know, I'm a Christian. So, so this guy he has his basket there, and I start hearing beep, beep. And so I'm counting them, of course. Like you haven't done this. So I'm counting them. Sure enough, 12. So he's busted. And I'm thinking, ha, I'm better than he is because I have two items. He has 12. And then, so he's, a, he's a, like a retired guy, and so I'm thinking to myself, okay, why isn't he in here when it's not lunchtime? Because, you know, I'm important, and I need to get back to my job. And so I smile again, because, you know, I'm a Christian. And, and so then he asked the lady for a box of Marlboros. Well, you know, a while back they changed it, so now the cashier has to go over to the office and get the, come back. And I'm looking at my watch, and I'm thinking, should I show him my business card to show him how important I am and how I need to get back and why he couldn't just do without these for a while? And then I'm thinking in my mind, well, okay, he smokes and I don't, so I'm even better than he is. So I begin to have this whole conversation in my head, smiling at him the whole time because, you know, I'm a Christian. So when he left, you know, with his 12 items, I probably looked at him and said, God bless. Have a nice day because I'm a Christian. But see, that's my heart. I can't even show kindness. My, my, my face showed kindness. My heart couldn't show that. because, uh, and, and this guy had never done anything to me. I don't even know his name. And he's never certainly done anything to me. But that's not the kind of kindness we're talking about. The word translated here is much more than that. And you've probably heard Drew and Jonathan talk about this before. It's the Hebrew word hesed. And this is a rich word meaning something like steadfast love, unfailing love, unwavering love, covenant love. It's a deep, deep, committed love. And one commentator I read said this is the highest virtue in the whole Hebrew culture, this particular steadfast love. So the idea here is that David wants to show this covenant love to someone in the house of Saul. In verse 3, he even used the, the term kindness of God. So what the kindness that he wanted to show was not just his own kindness, but the very kindness of God. So the gift David offers is kindness, a committed covenantal love. It's a concept that's a bit lost on our culture. We're not talking about this nod your head and be nice sort of kindness. It's much deeper than that. Steadfast covenant commitment in relationships. 
Now, there are two approaches that we, we take to relationships primarily. The one we're most familiar with is, is what we refer to as a consumer-supplier relationship, and here's how it goes. As long as uh, I, as a consumer, come to your store or your restaurant, and as long as you're meeting my needs, I'll keep coming back. We'll have a relationship. But as soon as the food's bad or the prices are too high, I'll move on to somewhere else. The company I work for is going through uh, what we refer to in the corporate world as a spinoff. Our division is being spun off into its own company. And I work in IT. And so one of the things that we're, we're doing in this whole spinoff is reviewing these hundreds of IT contracts with Microsoft and IBM and all these companies, and we're renegotiating all those. And when you ne- negotiate a contract with a company, what you're saying is, I'm going to do this, and you're going to do that, and as long as your needs are met and my needs are met, we're going to keep doing business. But as soon as that doesn't happen anymore, I'm going to move on to somebody else. And as much as I like my IBM account exec, I'm going to sacrifice the relationship with him to move on to another company that meets my needs, which is great in the business world. It's good for competition. It, uh, it really uh, drives good companies to be better and so forth. So it's all about getting our needs met. Now, the problem with that, it works well in the business world, but unfortunately our culture applies that to all relationships, family, personal, church, marriage even. I read this Reuters article recently. September 29th was the date, and the title is To 2013 Do Us Part. Here's the article. Mexico City lawmakers want to help newlyweds avoid the hassle of divorce by giving them an easy exit strategy, temporary marriage licenses. Leftists in the city's assembly proposed a reform to the civil code this week that would allow couples to decide on the length of their commitment, opting out of a lifetime. The minimum marriage contract would be for two years and would be renewed if the couple stays happy. Wow. How many of us would be married under that? The, the proposal is, I mean, I would, but, yeah, I would. The proposal is when the two-year period is up, if the relationship is not stable or harmonious, the contract simply ends. Now, in case you're wondering, that's a consumer relationship. That is not a covenant relationship, which is the other approach to relationships. Consumer relationship or covenant relationship. In a consumer relationship, I'm willing to sacrifice the relationship to make sure my needs are met. In a covenant relationship, I'm willing to sacrifice my needs to make sure I maintain the relationship. See, it's totally different. It's a total different level of commitment. And that's the covenant kind of commitment that uh, is, that's the gift that David is talking about here. He wants to show kindness, this covenant, steadfast, unfailing love to a descendant of Saul for the sake of Jonathan. Now, here's the, here's the back story on this. As you recall from this series, uh, Saul was king, but, David, but God was displeased with him and had Samuel anoint David to be the next king. And as I mentioned earlier, Saul's envy got the best of him. And he tried to kill David. For example, in 1 Samuel 18, Saul tried to pin David against the wall with a spear twice at a dinner party. Now, who of us hasn't hosted a dinner party and had a little too much to eat and accidentally tossed a spear at one of our guests, right? But twice in the same night? Mm, I don't think so. And so David, David was, was uh, on the run from Saul because he was out to kill him. He tried, I think, like six times to kill him. Now, during this time that David was on the run from Saul, David and Saul's son Jonathan had developed 
a deep friendship. Jonathan protected David from his father on many occasions. And back in Samuel, 1 Samuel 20, Jonathan made a covenant with David. And if you have your Bible, we're going to look at that real quickly. 1 Samuel 20, uh, starting with uh, verse 14. Jonathan says to David, But show me unfailing kindness like that of the Lord. This is that hesed we're talking about. That, like that of the Lord, as long as I live so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family. Not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him, because he loved him as he loved himself. So that's what uh, David is referring to in our passage. See, neither one of them at that point knew which would be king. Jonathan was the rightful heir of Saul's throne. David had been anointed by Samuel, so neither one of them knew what the future held. But here's what they were saying. No matter what comes, no matter where we end up, we're going to do this for each other. We're going to have this loyal, deep commitment for each other, and it's going to extend to our families. So that's what David is referring to, that covenant love, and that's the gift that he offers in this passage, which is pretty remarkable. But what makes it even more remarkable than the gift itself is the recipient who the gift is given, to whom the gift is given. See, David doesn't offer this gift to a friend or a family member or a political ally or somebody who's donated to his campaign to be king or whatever it is. He hasn't, that's not who he offers this to. He offers this to an enemy, which is so upside down, isn't it? I mean, we want, to, we, we want the worst for our enemies, not the best. And I'll give you a recent example, 8 or 9 o'clock last night. How many FSU fans were happier to see Florida lose to Auburn than they were to see FSU win yesterday? Yeah, see? We, we like bad things to happen to our enemies. We don't like good things to happen to them. And so the fact that David is giving this gift to an enemy is just absolutely remarkable. Now, let's take a look at specifically the face of this, the face of this enemy. And this is, again, in our text. We're... Um, we, we see that Ziba is brought to the king. David asks the question, is there anyone who, to whom I can show kindness? And Ziba, this advisor who worked for Saul, is brought in, and he asks him this question, is there anyone left? And so Ziba says, yeah, there's a, still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in both feet, which is every time Mephibosheth is mentioned, that tagline goes along with it. He's crippled in both feet, and, and he explains to him where he is, and so David had him brought in when Mephibosheth, and so verse 6, we're first introduced to his name, Mephibosheth. Now, the first time that we see him in the scripture is in 2 Samuel 4, 4. And in my Bible, it's a, it's a parenthetical verse. It's, it's like inserted into this bigger story. And we're, we're told that, uh, that he is the son of Jonathan. He's the grandson of King Saul. And at this point, he's five years old. And word comes to his village that his grandfather Saul and his father Jonathan, along with a couple of uncles, are killed in this vicious battle on Mount Gilboa. And so word comes back to the village that the king has been killed. And in that day, if a if a conquering army killed or captured a king, they would absolutely obliterate the rest of the family to ensure that no rebellions would rise up from the family, that there would be no heirs to the throne. This family of Saul knew this, so they grabbed everything and they started literally running out of their village, and a nurse picks up Mephibosheth, who's five years old, and on the way out, she dropped him, 
and broke both of his ankles or mangled his legs, and so he's been crippled ever since that day. And he's probably late 20s now. Now, Ziba explains that, that um, Mephibosheth is living in a place called Lodibar, which most commentators say means something like no pasture or desolate. So when you think of Lodibar, think movie set, western town, tumbleweed, dry, dusty, desolate, place you wouldn't want to be. That's where he lived. And he lived, he didn't have his own home, he lived at the generosity of Makir. So can you imagine that this, for 20 years now, he's been crippled, 20 or so years he's been crippled, and I'm wondering if, if all that time he had maybe been told stories about his grandfather and his father and David. Maybe not good stories. Maybe things like, you know, Mephibosheth, it's, it's David's fault that you're not living in the palace, that you're living out in this God-forsaken place. It's David's fault you're crippled. It's David's fault that you're poor and homeless. It's all David's fault. And so can you imagine, not only was he in fear of David because he was the enemy, he was the house of Saul, so he's in hiding, but he's probably angry and bitter at David as well because of what he perceives that David has done to him. So David finds out who this is, and he says uh, in verse 5, so King David had him brought from Lodibar, from the house of Machir, uh, to Jerusalem. So uh, Mephibosheth is there, been in hiding all these years, and messengers from the king, probably accompanied by soldiers, came to announce that David wanted him immediately to be brought to Jerusalem. Now, I, I can't imagine anything but just fear going through him at that point. So, so they put him on a donkey, and they begin this 70 or 80-mile trek to Jerusalem. And I, I just can imagine that every step of the way he's dreading what's going to happen and at the same time just wanting it over. And it's like if you're going to a, a sorry, Alan, a dentist appointment or something that, that you're, you're kind of dreading. If you're, you know, you know you're going to have a procedure done. Every, every mile you drive to get there, you're dreading, but you just want it to get over with, right? You know it's going to be whatever it is, so I just want to get it over with. So I can imagine that's probably what he's thinking at that point because there's no other explanation for the king wanting him there except to validate his identity, probably humiliate him, and then execute him because he's part of the house of the enemy. So in verse 6, we see Mephibosheth coming into the palace. And when he came into the palace, he, the, the scripture says he bowed down to pay him honor. Most of the commentators I read said this probably was not bowing so much as it was just falling prostrate, just lying on his face before David. And the first thing that he hears from David is his name, Mephibosheth. And he says to him, your servant, yes, I'm your servant, still gripped with fear, still thinking the worst, right? But David's response to Mephibosheth, and this is the tangible result of that commitment we talked about. This is, the, this is what that covenant love leads to. Here's what David says to him. Do not fear, which is exactly what he needed to hear at that point. Do not fear. So David says, don't fear. I'm not going to kill you. I'm not even going to harm you. And so Mephibosheth begins to start to feel relief. Okay, maybe I'm not going to be killed. Maybe he's going to do something different to me. And then David goes on, I'm going to restore the lands of your grandfather. Saul had property that were, was probably expropriated to David when he took over the kingdom. 
And so now he says, not only am I going to spare your life, but I'm going to restore the lands that, that you lost, that your, that your grandfather had. And he keeps going. I mean, this is beginning to get to be unbelievable for Mephibosheth, right? How could this get any better? And then he says, and not only am I going to restore lands, but I'm going to set up a, a, a way for you to have income and security, and I'm going to care for you. And so Mephibosheth's great. Couldn't get any better than this, but it does. David then goes on and he says, not only that, you're going to eat at my table. For the rest of your life, you're going to eat at my table just like one of my sons. So in an instant, at the king's word, nothing that Mephibosheth did, he didn't get better and come see the king. He came just crippled and homeless and all the other things. He came before the king, and because of the king's verdict on him, here's what happened. His death sentence was gone, and he was, giving li- he was given life. He went from fear of the king's wrath to assurance of the king's love, poverty to security, despair to hope, from hiding in the desert, homeless, to a seat at the king's table. He went from an enemy to a friend of the king and an orphan to a son of the king, just like that. What an amazing turn of events for Mephibosheth. And it's just the pronouncement of the king that made it all happen. His life was completely transformed. Now, he's still crippled for the rest of his life. He's still broken, but he's still viewed as the son of the king, and he gets to pull up a chair like everybody else does because he's been befriended and loved by the king. No other reason. So the question then has to come. We've seen the gift that David gives. We've seen to whom he gives it. The question has to come, why in the world would David do this? What's the motivation for this king to give such a gift. He had absolutely nothing to bring, Mephibosheth had nothing to bring to the equation. He was not going to be helpful to David. There was no expectation from anyone for David to do this. Maybe while Jonathan was alive and and there was value to David, but not now. For David to keep this promise, there was nothing to gain but everything to lose for him. See, Mephibosheth was the only living heir of Saul, and in theory, he could have used this newfound wealth that the king gave him to, to create a base for a rebellion, to take over the, the throne someday. And David knew that, but he gave the gift anyway. So politically, it was really not a good thing for him to do. It was a risk. And if David were overthrown by an event such as that, he certainly would have been killed. So it was personal risk to David as well. And then restoring Saul's estate cost David economically. So it was a bad play all around. It just wasn't, it wasn't a good business decision at all for him to do this. There's no upside. There's only downside. But David proceeds anyway. Why? Because of the covenant that Jonathan made with him years earlier. 1 Samuel 18, and if you want to turn there, we're going to look at verse 1. After David finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And then listen to this. Drew Drew mentioned this in a sermon several weeks ago. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, in his belt. So how could David find the courage and grace to give such a gift to such a person, to his enemy? And more importantly, how can we do that to our enemies? Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City, 
um, says it like this, and I couldn't say it any better, so I'm just going to quote him. Here's Keller. David had a friend who loved him covenantally. David had a friend who put himself in harm's way to take David out of harm's way and who lost his throne so David could ascend the throne. What a friend. David had a friend like that, and so do you. So do you. David could love Mephibosheth. David could risk his life to love Mephibosheth because of what Jonathan had done. And God can love you. And God can receive you. And God, though he has the right to smite you, can bring you into his presence and adopt you and empower you for the sake of an even greater friend. Because you see, David had a friend who lost an earthly throne. But we have a friend who lost a heavenly throne to save us. David had a friend who died on Mount Gilboa for him. And we have a friend who died on Mount Calvary for us. That's why David could do what he did. And that's why we can provide this covenantal love and give covenantal love in our relationships as as well. So that's the story of a covenant-keeping king and a life that was absolutely transformed because of the keeping of the covenant. Now, just a couple of of applications, uh, something maybe to think about, and then we're going to be finished. Uh, first of all, a couple of things. If, if you have placed your faith in Christ, if you are a believer, uh, a couple of things. One, we can love with this hesed, this covenant love, because of what Christ has done for us. What if we, as a people, just us, what if we began to, to have this kind of relationship with those in, in our lives, this covenant relationship in our marriages and our friendships and our church relationships, what would it say to the community? Do you think it might point them to the true heart of our king? What a difference that might make, not in just in our relationships, but what an impact to the city. We need to, the, our, our city needs to see not consumer relationships. We see that all the time. They need to see covenant relationships. And so as believers, may God empower us because of what Christ has done to go have those relationships. So when our marriage gets a little... Uh, difficult, we stay in it. When a friendship becomes too costly, we stick with it. We don't walk away because it's not meeting our needs anymore. What if we did that? How amazing that would that be? And second, if you're a believer, one of the reasons I love this story, I, it's one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible, and the reason I love it is because it's my story, right, on a different level. It's my story. See, this reminds me that I am Mephibosheth, right? I was an enemy of the king, Romans 5. Even while we were enemies, he loved us. I was an enemy of the king. I was hiding. I was on the run, and he came searching for me. Not because of anything I had to offer, but he came searching for me. He gave me life when I deserved death. He cares for me, and he's in the process of restoring me. And if that's not enough, he allows me to come and sit at his table. He adopted me, Galatians says. He adopted me as one of his sons. I love this story because of that. And even in my brokenness, he is doing all that in me. And so it should remind us as believers that that's our king. That's what he has done for us. We are Mephibosheth, and that's what he's done for us. It should drive us to, to gratitude the song we sung earlier, it should, it should bring chill bumps when we sing this. Out of my shameful failure and loss, Jesus, I come. Into the glorious gain of thy cross, Jesus, I come. 
Out of the fear and dread of the tomb, Jesus, I come. Into the joy and light of thy home, Jesus, I come. It should drive us to great gratitude because we should see ourselves in this story. It's a a beautiful picture in the Old Testament of the gospel. Now, if you're here today and Christianity is kind of something new to you or you're searching or you're just kind of kicking the tires on this thing, that's okay. We're glad you're here. But let me just just say this story is for you as well. See, there is a king who loves you with a steadfast love. And even though you you have maybe heard that he's not that great of a king, it's, it's because of him that you're in the condition you're in. It's not the case at all. He wants to come and he wants to bring you into his presence, not to harm you or smite you, but he wants to bring you into his presence to show you his covenant, steadfast love for you. He wants to care for you, restore you, and he wants to invite you to sit at his table too. See, that's the great news of the gospel for all of us. And that's our king. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, stories like this that allow us to see ourselves and also to see you as the great king who loves us with a steadfast love and no matter that we can't bring anything to the equation, we are crippled, we are hiding from you, we're running from you. But God, you love us with a steadfast love anyway and you want to bring us into your presence just to love on us, to restore us, to care for us, and to bring us in as sons and daughters of the King. Thank you for that, God. And this week, would you empower us, because of that great love for us, would you empower us to show that same love to others, uh, friends, (coughs) spouses, fellow church members, and even our enemies this week? Would you allow us to do that? And God, again, thank you for, um, for this story. Um, And thank you for the great news of the gospel that we've been able to see today in this story. In Jesus' name, amen. I imagine um, Mephibosheth was a little uncomfortable when you're shown that kind of love. Uh, It just can be a little unsettling. This is a little bit of an unsettling song, a little bit of an uncomfortable song. At least it's it's not the kind of song we typically sing, uh, but I thought it might be fitting today. So it's going to be new to you. So as we sing it, just sit and reflect for just a minute as in a response to um, the word of God this morning. And I think about the way that he loves us. I need to add uh, a verbal word to what we've just sung, and that is a promise that uh, as you go, uh, the, the promise is not just how he loves us, it's that he loves us, uh, and he loves us for Jesus' sake. And so, as we've said many times, uh, Jesus' hands were raised uh, to be crucified. Uh, and the wrath of God fell on him. He received the Father's frown in that moment and God's face was turned from him. I get to raise my hands over you uh, in promise and blessing, in, uh, in good news uh, that as you go, He's for you. Uh, and as we've sung, how it is He loves us, uh, dead dogs such as we. Uh, this is the promise as you go. His love is on you, and that is what enables you to go and love others, even your enemies. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn His face toward you and give you His peace now and forevermore. Amen. Go in His peace.